It's truly a blessing, isn't it, in so many ways to be able to come together, to have gathered for the purpose that we are. As you certainly appreciate that we've reached that point in the service wherein we devote some attention to a section of the Word of God with a goal of making application of those things to our heart and to our life that we might live more pleasingly, more acceptably, more faithfully to the great God of heaven. You may remember several weeks ago now at this point, we had made a statement that this year our elders had made the, the choice, the decision, that at least on occasion from time to time we would devote one of the Sunday evening sermons to a consideration of questions that might have been asked, questions that might have been proffered, if you please, and we would devote the time to basically answering some of those questions that, that in fact had been, had been extended. And tonight we're going to do the first of those for, for this year of 2018. As you look at some of the questions, of course, the questions are always reflective of the interest that, that you as a congregation would have. It's not questions that I would have asked. If that were the case, I would just have prepared a sermon, you see. But, but if it is a question you have asked, maybe it's questions that have arisen in Bible study classes. Maybe it's questions that you have specifically written out and handed to me or handed to one of the elders or deacons who in turn have given it to me. And then again, we're just going to give consideration to these. I might use this as an opportunity to again say, if you do have questions, why well, write those out, pass them along. Don't quite yet have that, that box finished out in the foyer, but hopefully that'll be uh, finished up pretty soon now. The Tonight's uh, introductory statement, this opening slide, reads like this. Brother Cale read just a moment ago from First uh, Peter 3, verse 15. And in that passage, again, the inspired writer said, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you, with meekness and with fear. And so it is that you and I are prompted, in fact commanded, to always be ready with answer. And in so doing, of course, it's our goal to allow the Bible to do the speaking. It is with that in mind we'll come to our questions then this evening. The first question was prompted by really a discussion we had in Bible class. It was a question that really had occurred a week ago today during the Sunday morning Bible hour, wherein a consideration of hell was at least offered, and the question was raised that really prompted some reflection on what was it like in terms of conversation, in terms of communication to be in hell. I think we often think about recognition in heaven, that is to say, we think often about the grandeur of those who are faithful knowing one another in heaven. Maybe that question could thus be asked in light of that terrible, terrible abode called hell. You'll notice on that slide, maybe this would be an appropriate time to remind ourselves. The Word of God, in fact, Jesus came, quite frankly, to tell us what to do to avoid hell. He came to remind us about the resplendent beauties of heaven, but also about the nature of this awful, terrible place called hell and what must be done to avoid it. In Mark 9, verses 43 to 48, a description is given of this eternal place called hell. It's called Gehenna in the ancient Greek text, if you please. And you may immediately notice this place is eternal. I know, just like no doubt many of us have heard, 
there are many who have reason that there is no way, at least in their mind, that a loving God could consign somebody to hell for an eternity, no matter what they've done. But now that reasoning completely overlooks the nature of what happened at the cross and the nature of the gospel and its invitation. The Bible on many occasions testifies to the fact that this eternal abode called hell really is everlasting. In fact, would you be impressed in Matthew 25, 46, that the very same Greek word that's translated eternal in relation to heaven is translated everlasting in relation to hell. They both last just as long. They're both eternal. It is with that in mind, may I ask you to notice that this place called hell is such that there are a number of descriptives given concerning it. One of which is this. It's a place, Jesus Himself said, that is a place of weeping. Don't ever lose sight of the fact there'll be a lot of crying, a lot of shed tears in hell, a lot of consideration relative to what might have been and what now can never be changed. Not only that, three times in the New Testament... In Matthew 8, verse 12, Matthew 22, verse 13, and Matthew 25, verse number 30. This place called hell is said to be a place of gnashing of teeth. That too is a rather frightening spectacle. For after all, that word gnashing literally means the biting, the crushing, if you please, upon something relative to the teeth. And you and I are rather aware that that can happen in moments of pain, Maybe you and I have even heard descriptions or experiences wherein when some very tragic and painful matter was occurring, you bite down on something, at least to give an outlet for the pain. Jesus three times used that phrase, gnashing of teeth, in relation to this eternal abode wherein the same place was said to be a place of weeping. The two do seem to go very closely together, don't they? But we aren't quite finished this place called hell again more than once. Three times, in fact, Jesus said it's a place of not just darkness, outer darkness. The Greek word means utmost darkness. It's as if one can imagine nothing darker. It's as if this is as dark as one might even can, can contemplate. Jesus said that's what this eternal place of abode is like. I suppose it might now be fair in putting those things together as you come near the bottom to notice it's a place of fire. Again, it was our Savior who said this, so it was not someone's imagination. It was not somebody's figment of appreciation. It was the Lord, and who better than He would know? He on this occasion affirmed for every one of us to overwhelmingly appreciate this place of weeping, of outer darkness, of gnashing of teeth. It's also a place where the fire is never quenched. It's a place where that fire rages, unabated and undiminished through all the ceaseless ages. I suppose putting all that together now, we might say this. The question I suppose brought before us was, what about recognition? Well, you might remember that the rich man seemingly had a knowledge of the matter of recognition in Luke 16. But might we say in light of these things, in the midst of the darkness and in the midst of the pain, even if you have some sentence of awareness of others being there, it shall be no comfort. It shall be none whatsoever of comfort. It'll be again a place of extraordinary anguish 
and misery and pain and surely no place that any of us would ever want to be. Now, as you think about then how different that is in terms of heaven, there it's a place of light. The revelator again describes that to us and there the concourse, the discussion, the enjoyment of singing and other things presents a very dramatically different picture, doesn't it? A happy place, a joyous place. There is no joy here even if there is some appreciation of awareness of those other eternal spirits that are there where you are. I might say that Revelation seems to indicate this. When the devil and the two beasts were cast into that lake of fire, you'll also remember that the false prophets were there, and so there's a sense of identity, apparently indicative of the fact that there may well be an awareness that others are there, but it will bring no comfort. Again, it's dark, and the pain is unimaginable. I suppose all of that brings us to the next question. The next question was submitted to me, and it reads like this. If a woman doing a private Bible study with a female who has been baptized in the church many years earlier but became denominational, and she wants prayers or forgiveness to make things right, she is unable to attend services, it goes on to say. And then the question is, is it appropriate for the female teacher to say a prayer in light of forgiveness on the woman's behalf, or does that require a male, a man, to come and word that prayer? Certainly a very good question, and we're all interested, of course, in appreciating the nature of what the Word of God teaches on this subject as well as others, of course, alike. I've tried to summarize some of the things, and again, without duplicating the fullness of the question, you may appreciate several ideas, several matters that were presented as a part of the nature of that question. And let me simply develop a few of them, if I might. First of all, it began by making note of this individual, in this case a woman, who was having a private Bible study with another woman. We each might appreciate how sweet it is to be the ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is to say, those who are equipped with a knowledge of and a desire to share that forth following the message and the wording of the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. That was Mark's version. And Matthew's version, in fact, broadens it to a stated in terms of nations like this. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And so at the very outset of that slide, I at least reminded all of us of those powerful marching orders that Jesus, the Son of God, has left for you and me to consider. It is in that regard, though, that no doubt a question like this one relates in our hearts and minds to a placement concerning the role of men and the role of women in the carrying out of the work of the church. And without a doubt, we appreciate that there's some differing things said about those in the wording of the New Testament. There is one thing you might note, though, in passing. 
there have been those who have accused through the years at least the Church of Christ as being very anti-woman. Some have even accused Paul of being a male chauvinist. After all, it's in his book of 1 Corinthians, in his book of 1 Timothy, wherein we find the major statements about restrictions on the role of women. Now, you and I would be quick to say Paul was not a male chauvinist. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 and following, he stated those things not because he was anti-woman, but because as he traced the matter back to the days of the creation onward, Remember, he based it on that truth. It was the man that was made first. And it was the woman who was in the transgression being deceived, but not the man. All of that leads us to say this. You'll notice in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, this interesting statement is found. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Maybe this is the time to at least reflect slightly on something that's very useful about the Greek language. Inasmuch as the New Testament was written in Greek, you'll notice that verse again had the word man appearing in it. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same to commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. If you are of a habit of making notes in your Bible, this might be a good place to make one. Because there are two different Greek words that are often translated man. One of them literally means a male in distinction to a female. That's not the word that appears here. The other Greek word that so often is translated man really means human family. It means the whole mankind, inclusive of men, of women, everybody that's a human. That's the word that's here. The word is anthropos. Human family. So, the things thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful people who shall be able to teach others also. And so you'll notice that ladies, women, also are given some instructions to properly and rightfully teach the gospel, not in anything that would counteract any other passage. That brings us to note here, here was a circumstance where a lady, a woman, was having a Bible study with another woman. Nothing improper about that. In fact, nothing in any sense that would be unscriptural about having such a Bible study. But some of the next comments are these. The text went on to say that this person with whom the study was taking place, though at one time had been a knowledgeable follower of the things of the Word of God, had become denominational. Well, again, that immediately brings to our heart and mind the realization that Jesus purchased but one church, only one. And although this person had appreciated and known that truth at one time, apparently, after marriage, that had no longer been the case. And therefore, how delightful it is to appreciate when a person's heart is tuned and desirous of appreciating the mistake in something like that. But then the question was, suppose this this person, this woman asks her female teacher to pray for me, to offer a prayer to God of forgiveness that I might be forgiven of these denominational pursuits that I have been making. You'll notice on that slide that immediately suggests to us the sweetness of the second law of pardon. When an individual, be it man or woman, 
once a faithful Christian and becomes aware of the fact that a misstep, a series of sins, if you please, have taken place. Thanks be unto God there's the opportunity for forgiveness. Thanks be unto God that there is that opportunity to come back to that blessed favor that once was known. But may I suggest that requires repentance. Maybe that's the matter that, as we noted this morning, is the most challenging of all of them because it requires a change of heart that shows itself in a change of action. That would certainly be something that the female teacher would want to insist that 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 person would understand. That is to say, whatever these denominational movements, these denominational beliefs, and perhaps even over quite a number of years may have now been, Repentance would be demanded by God. The question did say that this person wasn't able any longer to attend services, and thus it would be very critical to ensure the person understood the nature of forgiveness that it hinged on repentance. At the bottom of that slide, we might then offer an answer to the question. The question was, could the woman offer a prayer on behalf of the other woman? The answer is yes. I find nothing in the Bible that would prohibit that, based in part upon some of those verses I've listed at the bottom. I would ask you to think about maybe 1 Timothy 2.8 would come to mind. If you look at that passage, though, you'll notice Paul there again by inspiration said, I will that men everywhere lift up holy hands unto God. Does that then mean that a woman can never under any circumstances offer a prayer to God? That's not what that means. What that verse indicates is that when assemblies take place, assemblies of the church, when those occur, it is the plan and will of God that the males take care of and lead those prayers. So again, what that means is... If there's a group of women who are perhaps having their own study like our ladies do here, there's nothing at all improper about a woman offering one of those prayers. Or even if there's a private Bible study between some women, there would be nothing improper about a woman leading those prayers. It is in that regard, might I call your attention to James 5.16, a passage we've so often considered, but let's in fact consider it again. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person availeth much. Now again, the King James Version uses the word man, but that's that anthropos again. It's a righteous person that's the key. Be it a man, be it a woman, either individual can feel wholly right in offering a prayer to God on, on a situation like this one. At that point, as we draw that particular slide to its conclusion, we now perhaps note this. You might can think of other situations such as that one concerning Lydia in Acts chapter 16. There, a group of women had gathered at the riverside to offer in terms of service their work unto God. And you'll notice again, it was a group of women. In certain situations such as those... There would be no issue at all with a female, one of those ladies, offering a prayer unto God, even a prayer of forgiveness in light of other of the ladies that may be present. That question, though, also brings us to yet another question. 
Question number three of the evening. This question is, in some extent, a continuation of the one we just considered. Let me continue reading. If the woman's husband, who is of denominational faith, enters the room during that Bible study, does the female have to stop the Bible study? Or can a discussion, even of Bible matters, take place? And then perhaps at some later time, a man could come, if, if, if need be, and continue those discussions along that particular line of, of consideration. So I hope that the question is at least clear enough. Again, suppose that the woman's husband now enters the room. Maybe he's been away, maybe he's been outside, but suppose he now enters the room. Does the study need to stop immediately? Well, you'll notice on this slide, there are a few thoughts that maybe would be important for us to keep in mind. And as we develop these, again, our clue, our key, is going to be an attempt to allow the Word of God to do the speaking. And so as we begin at the top, we would be quick to say it is always our desire to be respectful of the roles in the New Testament concerning males and females in all the things that God has had to say concerning it. And no doubt that's partly, of course, what prompts a question much like this one and many others. First thing that we might note, could the two women continue discussing the Bible? If the man enters and maybe he's sitting down in the recliner in the living room, maybe they're at the kitchen table, would the study be able to continue simply between the two ladies? Yes. One of the things we quickly say concerning that would be this. Notice again, and maybe the passage that's already come to our mind is this passage in 1 Timothy 2. I suffer not a woman to speak, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now as we think about the application of a passage like that one, I suffer not a woman to speak, to teach, to usurp authority if you please over the man. But you'll notice the context in which that appears. That particular discussion that has taken place has to do with an assembly. Now, what's taking place in this home is not an assembly of the church. In fact, it's not a, it, it's not a, a, a declared, decreed Bible study. And therefore, one would be at least a little bit cautious to simply take the passages and apply them in any and all circumstances. For after all, if one were to do that, doesn't that in fact ask a lot of additional questions? Could a woman teach high school? Could a woman teach a college class? Could a woman teach in any way concerning those kind of matters? And you can begin to see some of the matters that would quickly arrive. The context of 1 Timothy 2 appears to be very carefully related to assemblies as it relates to, to the church itself. And therefore, given the private nature of this discussion between these ladies and the man enters, it leads me to ask you to notice the one phrase in that verse that appears to, to so readily come before us is, what does it mean to be over the man? I suffer not a woman to teach or to usurp authority over the man. Well, may I suggest to you, if the man's in another room in that house and they're studying, she is in no way teaching over him. And may I also say 
that as you think about what that phrase means, that of course has great significance relative to the intent of that study. Now in a moment, we're going to come and consider what's at the bottom. What if upon entering that house, the man does show interest? What if he sits down at the table as well? What if then he also has a desire to ask questions or at least to entertain the matter of that study? Then what needs to happen? Because clearly, now it's not that he's just in some other part of the house and it's not that he has been disinterested concerning it. Well, you'll notice at the bottom again, our text in 1 Timothy 2 has highlighted a discussion apparently in relation to the assemblies of the church. Now, you may ask, how can we be sure of that? Well, the sister passage in 1 Corinthians 14, remember there Paul expressly said in verse 34, I suffer not a woman to speak. Now, that was very strong language, and inasmuch as that was made, we've already noted in our study of that chapter that the church had come together. Note verse 23, verse 26 to name 2. And so again, those two passages immediately in their application seem to relate to those circumstances in which the church has, been come, has come together in a period of assembly. So one more time, even in this case, we might at least have pause to just pick these verses up and use them in this way. But it does seem from other passages in the Word of God that we have at least an approach given to us. Let's see, let's see about this one. First of all, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, we notice that there is a very powerfully presented hierarchy or order of things. There's God the Father and He's head of Christ. Christ is the head of the man and the man is the head of the woman. Now that hierarchy in every place respectively must be honored and appreciated. And so in this case, we certainly should at least have a moment of pause on the next slide, maybe this development would be a reasonable one. We have a pattern in Acts chapter 18 about something at least similar to this one. You might remember that there was a man named Apollos. Apollos, though eloquent and though a rather knowledgeable man, it is true that he in fact had been bold and he had preached much, but when Aquila and Priscilla heard him they readily perceived that there was something amiss. That is to say, he only taught relative to the baptism of John the Immerser and not the grandeur and wonder of the baptism attached to Jesus Christ. And you'll notice it says, they took Apollos aside and taught him privately. And the Bible is very clear. It was they, so Priscilla had a role in this, but it was with her husband. It was with that man. May I suggest, on this occasion, it seems as though the following answer would be entirely reasonable. If that man, again, were to begin to show interest, that woman would have every right to try to instill in him an interest in spiritual things, to maybe gauge his interest of having a future Bible study, maybe to try to heighten in him a desire for heavenly matters, but engaging those things to find out what might be a good time for she and her husband to come back or for perhaps a couple from the congregation to come and to continue on in that study, perhaps much like Aquila and Priscilla would have done. 
you'll notice then you're the bottom of that slide. It seems, given that pattern, that example, that that'd be the most prudent and the wisest thing that we would at least be able to offer at this time. And so we've looked at three questions tonight. And having looked at all three of these, maybe this statement of conclusion is in order. Questions are wonderful things. You and I may have to struggle or wrestle in the Word of God to piece together and rightly divide it to find the answer. But isn't it true? The study alone would be worthwhile. The digging in the Word of God would be a treasured thing. And so we've thought tonight about hell. How miserable. Whatever concourses there won't be pleasant in any way, even if one is knowledgeable about others that may be there. Secondly, could that woman continue the Bible study with the woman? Could she lead the prayer? Absolutely she can. And finally, if the man enters, could she at least gauge his interest in spiritual matters? Sure she could, with the goal of maybe seeking sometime in the near future when a man could be a part of that and maybe carry that out respectful of that hierarchy of 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. Thank you for your attention this evening. And again, if there are questions, pass those along to myself or one of the elders or deacons. And here in a few weeks, we'll have another lesson where we'll look at some more questions with answers. Thank you for your attention tonight. And I, you've been very kind in every way to give attention to these things. And aren't we thankful for the Word of God? For literally, it does have in it things that are described in four ways in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable, note, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And that's been our goal, as it always is. Brother Larry has chosen a hymn of encouragement. It is an opportune time wherein we, if we find ourselves amiss from God, it would be a perfect opportunity to make things right, using, of course, the blood of Jesus Christ. But also, if merely you have a desire to pray for strength, to have prayers for encouragement, for wisdom, or even for any other matter in life, we as a family would be happy to offer such prayers to God because we believe in the power of prayer. At this point, we're going to stand and sing that song. And if there would be anyone in the audience with an interest in responding at this time, just realize that it is the Lord's invitation and not anybody's here at Pippin in particular. And if we could be of help to you, we would urge you to come at once while together we stand and while we sing.